This is the Pluck Chicken Podcast. Well, Pastor Kearns, today uh, we're going to turn the tables a little bit, and uh, we'll start off uh, with me as the first speaker, and uh, you uh, sort of joining the conversation. This is a new pattern. Um, and what we're doing is we're uh, taking a look at uh, a document that's almost 500 years old. Uh, we're going to be looking at something known as the Formula of Concord. You're well aware of this. Uh, this is a part and parcel of any Lutheran pastor's uh, education um, and something that we refer to on a regular basis. But I wanted to stop and talk about why in the world uh, it would be important for us to talk about anything else uh, than Scripture when we're talking about the teaching of God's Word, of God's message. There are these attitudes out there, I think alive and well in American Christianity, that really... Uh, you know, it, it's probably represented by that silly song, Drop Kick Me Jesus Through the Goalposts of Life, right? All I need is Jesus, and all I need is my Bible uh, as I uh, walk through this life uh, as a Christian. And uh, talk a little bit about that attitude in evangelicalism. There is this school of thought that says that uh, it's Jesus only. All that matters is me and my Jesus. Then there's this other school of thought thought that is going to get bogged down in the minutiae, the smallest aspect of maybe Hebrew life, or I think I've shared this before, you get a healthy dose of how the world began and a really bigger dose of how the world's going to end. So you spend a lot of time on creation, and then you've jump all the way to the end and there's charts and graphs and movies and everything that you can imagine regarding how it's all going to go down in the end. And so one in the evangelical world can spend years and years studying these things uh, where the scripture is clearly not as... Um, precise as maybe we would want it to be. That's probably why they want to study it, right? Right. Untangle the nest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which obviously leads to a lot of speculation. You know, this is what I love, especially about what uh, you're going to take us through in regard to the epitome is this, is this line that says that uh, what is contained in the epitome is, is really a layman's Bible. Everything necessary for a Christian to know for salvation is included in them, which is handled more extensively in the Holy Scriptures. This is another problem that I find in evangelicalism, where if somebody, say, like what we've talked about before, these, um, these Lutheran theologians who came together and wrote the epitome, if they summarize the Bible for the layman, the argument is made, well, that's not the Bible. It's like somehow or another the summary of the Bible uh, isn't the biblical message. Doesn't wash. Right. right. And this leads us right into the problem that I think a lot of people have emerging out of American Protestantism uh, in regard to other churchly documents that have expressed the truth. Now, Lutherans are very different in this regard, and we just need to talk about this right up front. When a Lutheran pastor is ordained, he promises to conform his teaching to all the teachings of the Scripture and of the Evangelical Lutheran Confessions. And to a lot of people who come you know, from outside of this tradition, they would look at that and say, this is anathema. How can you have any other word besides God's word as the, uh, as the driver, right, in the driver's seat? Now, this gets us on to a really good but important issue, I think. Have all the issues been settled by God's Word? And the answer is yes. Any issue that is settled in the Word of God is a settled issue. It's not as if anyone makes the claim that additional documents add to what the Lord has already taught in the Scriptures, but they emerge in times of trial within the church. And, and this is why they're so valuable. The sort of catalog of documents that we consider authoritative in addition to the scriptures, and we'll talk about that relationship in a little bit, are the Apostles' Creed, uh, where we get clearly asserted who God the Father is, who God the Son is, and what he did, who God the Holy Spirit is, and what he does. Uh, not a word in there uh, could be controverted by any 
Christian who believes what the scriptures teach. It's just that they don't have to go flipping through over a thousand pages to, to find that out. Well, true, but I was reading a book uh, just last week. It was um, kind of a 35th anniversary of John MacArthur's works. I don't know, 13, 12, 13 chapters in it. And one chapter's taken from, you know, this book and one chapter from this book. What is that called? An anthology of sorts. He was berating the Apostles' Creed because it didn't contain everything that needs to be included in a creed. It didn't, uh, he was saying... As far as he was concerned. As far as he was concerned. He was saying that a Jehovah's Witness could read that and ascribe to it. He was saying that there was nothing about the sufficiency of Scripture in the Apostles' Creed. I I just thought, man... (laughs) There was nothing uh, about uh, salvation by grace alone through faith alone is in the creed. Now, is he right? Yes, but guess what he does at the very end? He takes the whole thing, and he just crumples it up, and he throws it into the garbage can. Right. It's not that everything is contained in these creeds, though. And they they, they provide a really wonderful function, um, a sort of guardrail function. When you talk in the language of the creeds, when you talk within the agreement of the creeds, you're, you haven't driven the train off the rails. When you talk outside of the agreement of the creeds, then you're likely to have fallen off the rails. On the topics that they're speaking about, wouldn't you agree? I mean, they, they do say nothing about the Holy Scriptures. The Holy Scriptures testify of themselves in clear language. Yeah, the confessions address everything, not, not necessarily the creeds. But the creeds are a part of the confessions. I mean, that's contained in them. Right. And they, and they are a, a, a wonderful platform to begin with, right? Well, let's just talk, since we're talking about the confessions, let's let people know what those confessions are. So we've got the Apostles' Creed, which dates as early, uh, probably it's in use already by A.D. 85, uh, in the Church of Rome, uh, f- used for baptisms. The next creed to be included in the Lutheran confessions is the Nicene Creed. That dates to uh, the late 300s, and it's really not the Nicene Creed, it's the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed. The Nicene Creed didn't settle all the issues. That creed was developed to address a heresy uh, that said that the Son was of like substance with the Father and not of the same substance of the Father. And you can see how it does that. The first Official Lutheran creed, written by a Lutheran, is uh, the Augsburg Confession, written in 1530 by Philip Melanchthon. And this is uh, the unaltered Augsburg Confession that was followed up immediately by a response from the Roman Catholic Church, which Melanchthon replied to in 1531 in a document known as the Apology of the Lutheran Confession. Those were public documents uh, used uh, to confess the faith. Meanwhile, Luther had developed two teaching texts in the 15, late 1520s, um, 1528, 1529, the large and small catechisms. We still use the small catechism to teach children. Going forward, uh, we come to the small called articles drafted by Martin Luther as a document of agreement between various uh, princes, uh, evangelical princes of Germany in 1537, looking to sign a treaty, a, a treaty of defense. That's appended by the treatise on the power and primacy of the Pope, written by Philip Melanchthon, a fascinating uh, little document. And then there's nothing, really. For a period of about uh, 40 years, some controversies begin to arise, and they're finally addressed by a group of Lutheran theologians. Luther is dead by this time. Melanchthon is dead by this time. In 1577 and 1578, which came to be known as the Formula of Concord. Uh, And formula means a little form, and concord, of course, means agreement, so a little form of agreement. And these address controverted issues uh, that had arisen among Lutheran teachers uh, and even uh, from outside influences and establish Lutheran teaching. Now, that's the history of these things, right? Um, We're going to focus on the formula of concord in particular. It takes up a, a number of really interesting issues that people will love to hear about. Uh, But today, uh, I thought it would be good to focus on the relationship uh, that we read about in the introduction to the uh, formula of Concord uh, between Scripture and confessions, right? So what, I mean, this is is a a sort of 
interesting question. We've said we espouse these confessions, but we also espouse Scripture. And in fact, we espouse Scripture above the confession. So how does this work out? Well, before we get there, I'd love to just backtrack for one second. You know, these are these are really new terms that you're throwing out, especially to the, um, the dyed-in-the-wool American evangelical. When you say creed, when you say catechism, when you say confession, these are all new terms. Uh, I mean, they may have heard them in some context, but they don't think of them a- as being different from one another. Like, for instance, uh, a confession is well let's go let's go from uh, let's go the opposite direction the the creed is going to be a brief statement of belief very concise whereas a catechism uh, this is going to be a teaching tool that primarily not always but it's in the form of questions and answers so it's going to be a different type of structure than the brief doctrinal statement that one believes, teaches, and confesses. Sure. Whereas the confession, which you've just walked us through, it contains the creeds, it contains the catechism, but it also has these documents, these um, power and primacy of the Pope, the, uh, the formula, the epitome. It has all of these extra documents. They're clearly, though has got to be some overlap. I mean, it's not like uh, it's not like the creeds are going to say one thing that the catechism doesn't say, that the confessions don't allude to. There's clearly got to be a lot of overlap. It just comes down to the structure is different for each one. The structure is different, and I, I would say that uh, the, what, what the creeds have in conciseness the confessions don't have. They elaborate. Uh, they on. elaborate a lot more. So they'll walk through the exegesis of important passages. They'll explain the um, how, uh, say, original sin and um, the bound will are tied together uh, in biblical teaching and so on. That's a that's a good review for sort of laying laying this out. But we 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 should also note that this is a really good thing that we have these creeds, catechisms, and confessions, because even though the evangelical mind just wants to say, I'll just stick with the Bible, thank you very much, what these documents have done for us is they have laid out, they have summarized, they have parsed out, so to speak, uh, certain theological topics and given us exactly what the Bible is saying about said Subject, subject, yeah, whatever that might be, yes. So they're they're really good points of reference, and one might respond as a Lutheran uh, to uh, to the evangelical contention: these are useless documents. Then why do you read your Max Lucado, or why do you read the Purpose Driven Life? Uh, the point is that there are going to be secondary. There's always in the in the Christian Church going to be secondary material, and the question is: what are you feeding yourself with? Uh, and a confession is is of a different um, kind of, it, it holds itself to a different standard uh, because what it says of itself, what it attempts to do is to speak for and clearly the entire message of the scriptures. If it fails, it should be rejected by the church. In other words, uh, you know, Max Lucado, right? I mean, a, a Max Lucado book can be forgotten in a hundred years. A hundred? <laughs> Less than that? Yeah. <laughs> okay, very good. Unless, unless you're reading your Max Lucado book with a Thomas Kincaid painting in the same room that you're in while drinking from a coffee mug that says, I can do all things through Christ. <laughs> if you've got that going on, there, there's some staying power with that I Max gotcha. Lucado. <laughs> I understand. But, but Max Lucado never purports to be speaking the final word, does he? Whereas a confession does purport to be speaking the final word. Um, when we say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, whoever said those words first and put them on paper first, and we don't know who the author of that was, was making a statement that because it is an accurate reflection of the scriptures is true 
for all times. And that's a very different thing from a... A contemporary writer who is just um, coming up with some unique way in which to communicate some said truth. Correct, correct. So part of what we're going to do here today, I mean, we got two things going on, right, Uh, throughout this whole thing. Number one is kind of defending the idea that you should have confessions. That's the first point. But number two, talking about just how solidly biblical uh, these confessions are. And that's kind of what I'd like to do. I'd like to jump in here on that latter topic, how solidly biblical these are. Before you do, it just absolutely amazes me, we've already touched on it, how the confessions in the mind of the American evangelical are Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, Uh, accept Jesus into your heart, Um, we need to tell everybody that we can about Jesus. I mean, it's so vapid. I mean, it's just, it's so, they're almost non-existent. If they're there, it's all subjective. Good. And and so what you're doing is you're drawing a major contrast between the the real substance in a real confession and, and drawing a, a distinction between that and the kind of folk confessions that are that are out there. And there are all sorts of folk confessions. What would Jesus do? Yeah, and just to define, I think, the way that you were defining it, folk confessions are just, they're put off by the world that people just imbibe just just because. I mean, a, a silly one is when you die uh, and go to meet Peter at the pearly gates, right? I mean, this is, that's folk theology. That's, uh, you know, there there's nothing in the scriptures whatsoever. And if anybody pushes on that, they know that that's not true, but it's just this, uh, you know, this thing that uh, we've just kind of picked up along the way. Or, you know, angels or baby, or, you know, look, look like babies. Or that You've mentioned one not too long ago, the devil with the, uh, the pitchfork. I mean, all of these things that they're just in the ether. And a confession helps cut through all of that. Uh, because a confession comes to all of that with uh, clarity of language and precision of thought. All of it under guidance of the Holy Scriptures. Coming back to this point, just to make it even sharper, a Lutheran pastor vows publicly before man and God that this is what he is going to teach. It's not It's not something that he is allowed to, uh, you know, like it's a living document. And he's allowed to mess around with it. No, th- this is exactly what the Lutheran pastor vows to teach. And so, should should a Lutheran pastor find himself in a situation, and I think some do from time to time, saying to themselves, wow, I hear the scriptures talking this way, or this is how I'm reading these scriptures here, but this is what the confessions say on, on this particular topic. What does a Lutheran pastor do then? You go with the confession. Number one, you go with the confession. You say, I believe, in a sense, I believe helped on my unbelief, right? And you wait till it becomes clear. But if it never becomes clear, a Lutheran pastor is duty-bound to leave his Lutheran call and associate with a church body that does allow him to teach uh, what that is. And so he doesn't write a paper. He doesn't have an article printed in one of the Lutheran magazines or something about his heresy. Yeah. No, 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 he's not allowed to do this. So, so that the neat thing about the confessions in the, in this regard are this, that the layman sitting in the pew can, with the help of these confessions, tell immediately if his pastor is a Lutheran pastor or not. And, you know, as we're saying this, we're, we're making it sound like it's, you know, Lutheran this, Lutheran that. That's not really it. What we're saying is the, the layman in a Lutheran pew can tell immediately whether what his pastor is teaching from the pulpit squares with the scriptures. Can you differentiate for us between orthodoxy and heterodoxy and heresy? Sure, I'd, I'd be happy to. So uh, orthodoxy is correct teaching. So when the layman, regardless of Lutheran, is hearing exactly what the scriptures are taught, that the confessions espouse, and it is right in line with that, then that layman can say, this is orthodox teaching. This is orthodox. And so ortho means straight and doxe, uh, opinion or thought. Heterodoxy is opinion or thought that diverges from the straight path. Now, there's a difference um, 
as you mentioned, between heterodoxy and heresy. Heresy is a subcategory of heterodoxy. Heresy is false teaching attaching to the nature and work of God himself. So a heretical statement would be something like, Jesus is not the Son of God. This goes straight to his identity. Um, is it false teaching? Absolutely it's false teaching because it doesn't agree with the scriptures. But it falls into this special category that if you believe that, then you you do not own the God of scriptures. You can't lay claim to him. Okay, so baptism does not save is a direct affront to what the scripture teaches. So one who believes that baptism is only for showing the world that you made this internal decision, then where does that fall? That would fall into heterodoxy or, or false teaching, presumably. And I don't want to ask about any of the other beliefs of that person, but I'm assuming at this point in time that they believe everything that is laid out in the in the Apostles' Creed, that Jesus was is the Son of God who was born of a virgin, assumed the human nature to himself, suffered and died for the sins of the world, and, and that through faith in in that sacrificial death you have everlasting life uh, i'm assuming that that's true so they're hung up on a teaching of scripture now ultimately that's going to lead them to question the other things in the creed unfortunately so uh, this is another interesting thing to talk about scriptures like uh, luther uses this wonderful analogy it's like a golden ring a golden ring, when it's intact, is super strong. You can't do anything with it. But take a hacksaw to it and take out one small millimeter chunk uh, of it, cut right through, and you can squish it and stomp on it and turn it into all sorts of different shapes. So if I were to look back on my past before the confessions ever were introduced, I would liken you know, my life to being like a bell curve in that there were a lot of things that were orthodox in my understanding, my things that I had been taught, things I had learned. They were as straight as an arrow. Unfortunately, there were some heterodox teachings as well. I thought they were orthodox at the time, but then when, say, the confessions started to challenge those heterodox beliefs, a decision had to be made. Either A... Do you go with what's orthodox, regardless of the cost, or do you continue to stay in your heterodoxy regarding uh, these beliefs? And as you said, unfortunately, they, it was very difficult to take these things in isolation because they have tentacles that reach out to other things. And so my question to you is, wouldn't you say that the goal of every Christian is to rid themselves completely of anything heterodox in that this is not just my own individual goal. This is this is what God wants for you. He does not want us to be cattywampus on, on any of his truths. No, and uh, I was going to ask you, when you were in this former life of yours, uh, had many, he many orthodox teachings, uh, but also had heterodoxy uh, in part of your tool sack, were you orthodox or heterodox? To sum it all up, I mean, look, if the level's broken, right? right? I mean, how can we build the wall? At the end of the day, any heterodox teaching and belief, a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. Right. It, it's, it's going to, it, it cannot stay contained. And so it has a corrosive effect even on those, those teachings that, are orthodox that you that you had in your head orthodoxly yeah I, I would agree with that that's the sort of real-life consequence of espousing uh, heterodoxy in your own thinking but back to your original point uh, on this very matter uh, you had asserted uh, this this that every Christian doesn't he want to espouse everything that God teaches and and I think that the answer has to be yes if if what the scriptures give us is God's will and God's word, why would the new man, this creature of God in us, want to deviate from what the Lord himself teaches? And to me, the it's like a slam dunk. No, right? And John gives us, you know, 1 John chapter 5 gives us the reason for that. If we have received 
the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. And we say, why is that, John? Why is God's witness greater? And he responds by saying, for he has, uh, for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. So we have known the Lord Jesus, our Redeemer from sin and from death and from the devil's power through the Holy Scriptures. This, this treasure that we have that is heaven was given to us through God's word. Why would there be a single thing in all of that word that we would expect would mislead us or, or um, deceive us, deceive us or that we wouldn't want to have? Yeah, I, I look, I, I am with you in spirit that you would think that the individual would want to run through their entire, let's just use the analogy you used just a moment ago, run through every, you know, every tool that they have in their toolbox, every theological truth that, that they've ever encountered, and make sure that that bad boy is straight. You would think that. Here's the problem. Making sure that every tool in your toolbox is straight when you come across a tool that is broken, you're going to have to throw it away. That's painful. That's painful because grandpappy gave me that tool. Or I learned that tool at summer camp when I threw a stick in the fire mm-hmm. and committed myself to Jesus. It's going to require a decision. And that decision, as you mentioned earlier, if I'm going and I am listening to my pastor speak heterodoxy. Well, I mean, I could go to him, I guess, and say, look, you're not, you're not in line with what the scriptures are, are teaching. Uh, he, he may make a mid-course correction. Maybe not. The point is, that doesn't happen a lot without you getting the bullseye put on your back, and now you are the one who's causing trouble and problems. And the point is, as you teach the kids... You teach them what? When they hear false doctrine, what do you teach them? Run like hell. Run like hell. It just seems that so many are content to listen to that corrosive teaching, not thinking that it's corrosive at all, not thinking it's going to do any damage to the orthodox teaching that you have. It's going to require a decision. I think Jesus was very clear when he said, look, I came to bring a sword. And these are those verses that talk about separation from mother and father. I mean, those are not throwaway verses. Well, every Christian is obligated by the scriptures themselves that have given them Christ to be monitors of the preaching diet that they're on, right? We all recognize how important it is, particularly as you get older, to watch what you eat. And you do it for multiple reasons. You want to keep up your strength. You don't want to put on the weight. You want to eat in such a way that it keeps your brain healthy, so on and so forth. I'm starting to realize all this stuff. Cholesterol down. Exactly. Bring that cholesterol down. Isn't that your newest reason? (laughs) Yeah, for Metamucil, (laughs) yes. So the first thing is that every Christian is obligated by the Scriptures to do this. And we see this time and time again in the scriptures, right? St. Paul, Romans 16, 17. Mark those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine that you have learned and avoid them. What it means is that I need to know what the scriptures teach. And then I'm obligated to avoid people who teach contrary to it. If you want to think about it in consumer terms, we're always consuming The question is, we got to be asking ourselves, what are we consuming? And that's what the confessions are so helpful for. But wouldn't you say as well, uh, when you have Paul also saying elsewhere, that people will long to, to gather to themselves teachers that will tickle their ears. This is a false teacher who is telling the people exactly what they want to hear. Nobody is checking to see if the tools in their toolbox are straight or working or what have you. Sadly, this is a judgment of God when he starts putting these false teachers into pulpits. He gives them what they deserve, not according to his mercy. And gives them what they want. Yes, what they want and deserve, yeah. It is a judgment of God. And so uh, maybe this is a good moment to just say, look, uh, if you're listening to this, get out your book of Concord. If you haven't bought one, go to the cph.org site and uh, Google 
on their site, Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions, and pick up uh, a copy for yourself. I think you'll find it extremely uh, enlightening and, and allow it to, to test your belief. Um, and if you don't agree with it, call us. Uh, and if you do agree with it, find a Missouri Synod Church. Well, even uh, just for listening right now, uh, while you wait for it to be delivered to your house, I mean, this is, this is online. It's, it's free. You have access to it. You just type in uh, Formula of Concord Epitome, and uh, it'll come up. It'll come up. It'll be old old language, so don't be daunted by that. Uh, the the one that I was referring to you, uh, you two is a little bit easier, a lot easier to read. So let's talk now then about the relationship between true words that are not in the scriptures and the scriptures themselves. What would you say about that relationship? Is it possible, even, Pastor Kearns, for a person to speak God's truth not using the very words of Scripture. Yes, but clearly one is inspired and one is not. Well, inspired in a different way. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Good. So what we should be able to do then is take anything that is written outside of the Scriptures and rub them against the Scriptures and see the veracity of their claims. Here's a problem, here's a problem, here's a problem, here's a problem. And in fact, the scriptures were given for that very reason. They're given for uh, teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3. So again, the, this is not like rocket science. You can take a perfectly orthodox document, the very scriptures themselves, and compare another writing to them and say, does this other writing properly teach what these scriptures teach. So that's the first thing that we do when we come against a public confession of of the church. Um, It was found, for example, uh, inadequate, the way that the original draft of the Nicene Creed was written in the year 325. Didn't adequately address the problems, and what happened was people could shoehorn two contrary beliefs into the into the draft uh, of that confession. How did, they, how did they come to that? Well, they came to it by looking at the scriptures. And the question was this, is the Son of God simply of like substance or of the same substance of the Father? Is his divinity full-bore divinity or is it sort of like a, a kind of a pale reflection or a slightly paler reflection of the divinity of the Heavenly Father? And the answer is, no, it's fully divine. And so that's why the the new draft of the confession, the public confession, scrutinized by the scriptures, says of the same substance with the Father. You have two people looking at the same scripture, and there is two different conclusions Clearly, we know enough about Bible that says there's only one correct interpretation. There's not— Of it, that one passage. Right. Correct. It's not what you think and what I think and what somebody else thinks. There is only one interpretation, the goal of which, getting back what we would want the desire to be for us all, is to discover what that one interpretation is so that then we label all the other interpretations as dead-end roads. Good, and and hope that the su- successive generations just won't even go down them. Correct. Right? Why waste it's a, time? It's a dead end. Right. It's not going to get you anywhere. Right, yep. right. And so the confessions come along, and they are saying— this is the way, walk ye in it, right? Here's the right way. Don't don't get sidetracked and start going in this direction. And if I'm not mistaken, as you will point out when we go through the epitome, that's exactly what it does. It says this is why we disagree with the beliefs of the Manichaeans. This is why we disagree with the beliefs of the so-and-so. I mean, this this is what it's trying to do. It's trying to walk us in the right direction and not uh, get sidetracked by these uh, false interpretations. In a way, it's like they they are helping the church not to become a skipping record, right? And just replaying the same old heresy or false teaching over and over and over again and sort of recorrecting all the time. And and no one's served by that. And so what we have here is uh, straight teaching. You know, the the confessions themselves say, I'm going to read to you the very first words of the summary from the epitome. And this is really wonderful stuff. We believe, teach, and confess 
that the only rule and norm according to which all teachings, together with all teachers, should be evaluated and judged are the prophetic and apostolic scriptures of the Old and New Testament alone. For it is written in Psalm 119.105, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And St. Paul has written, Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. So the confessions themselves submit themselves, and this is an important thing. Uh, a confession can't be a confession if it does not submit itself to the final enduring authority of the Holy Scriptures. And this is where Lutherans would speak of the uh, the norming norm. Which is the Scriptures. And then what's the other? The normed norm. Normed norm. Right. So, and I think this, that's a helpful, uh, this is a helpful point to bring that, or place to bring that up. We all have norms in life, don't we? Um, we have standards of, of conduct, of thinking, of you know, rules of math and so on and so forth. Well, the standard that standardizes everything in the church and that must standardize everything in the church is the scriptures alone. But we also recognize in life that we've got sort of knockoff standards in a sense, right? Applications of the overall standard in a particular situation. So, for example, isn't there this clock in Greenwich. Have we talked about this before? Keeps it's the world atomic clock, right? And it keeps the time that all the other clocks are supposed to uh, follow. And on our computers, they do. They might be just a nanosecond off or something like that, uh, unless the thing is really malfunctioning. But the interesting thing is this. If I've got a malfunctioning clock, I can always find out what the world atomic clock says the time is and correct my clock to that. And that's exactly how the norming norm and the normed norm work. The Book of Mormon, for instance, it's completely rejected because it's not a normed norm. Correct. It functions as a norm for many people, but it's not been normed by the norming norm. Even if you're a Mormon and your name happens to be Norman. <laughs> <laughs> and your ancestry is from Normandy? Yeah. yeah. So that's the, the scriptures have the overall preeminence in the church. And I think as you listen to our podcast, you've definitely heard that. We, our appeal is always to the, to the scriptures. It goes on and says this. However, other writings by ancient or modern teachers, no matter whose name they bear, must not be regarded as equal to the Holy Scriptures. All of them are subject to the Scriptures. Other writings should not be received in any other way or as anything more than witnesses that show how this pure doctrine of the prophets and apostles was preserved after the time of the apostles and at what places. So in other words, these are uh, the other writings of, say, St. Augustine or St. Clement of Rome or uh, St. Cyprian, they're reflections of the norming norm. Can they be wrong? Of course they can be wrong. They can be wrong. How do you know if they're wrong? Well, they have to submit to the norming norm. Right. So if we find a passage in Cyprian, for example, that disagrees with what the norming norm teaches, it must be rejected. There might be glimmers of great brilliance and uh, orthodoxy there, but those passages where he's wrong cannot be counted as divine truth. They, they, in fact, must be rejected as contrary to divine truth. So even with Luther himself, we as Lutherans, we don't look at all of his writings and accept them all as gospel truth. No, we don't, for, for many, many reasons, uh, not least of which is that he sometimes erred. There's no question. Let's just take the, the most well-known document of Luther uh, that, that everybody is aware of. It's the 1517-95 Theses. In the 95 Theses, Luther still maintains purgatory. He still believes in purgatory. This does not square with the scriptures. Therefore, the 95 Theses could never be a public confession of the Evangelical Lutheran Church. Which is why it's not included in our Book of Concord. Right. 
And why is that? It's because they disagree with what the scriptures teach. You know, I, th- I think everybody in principle agrees that the scriptures must be preeminent in the church. You've alluded already to two guys reading the same passage in a different way. And I think it raises the really interesting question, how in the world does this get solved? Uh, you know, a classic example being John 6. Does it pertain to the sacrament of the altar or does it not? This is one that's got people scratching their heads. You have one party that contends it absolutely does, another party that contends it absolutely doesn't. Let's take the confessions out of question right now because they do deal with that. But but how in the world would would a writer of a confession try to come to an answer of this question of two groups of theologians, both of goodwill, both asserting what sound like very pious things that are at loggerheads with each other. A a Lutheran, in approaching this question, would would begin with several points, I think, that are really worth bearing in mind. So so this actually gets into this whole business of hermeneutics, uh, what we're talking about right now. First one is this is that only those passages that announce, as it were, that they are talking about a certain topic can be brought to bear on that certain topic. So in other words, I can't import a passage talking about topic X and force it to talk about topic Y because I don't like what is said about topic Y elsewhere. That's number one. The classic example of this would be the baptism thing. The scriptures clearly teach, First Peter, uh, baptism also now saves us. Well, we've got a whole group of Christians out there who say, no, baptism can't save you, and they appeal to Paul's statements uh, that we are justified by faith apart from works. Baptism's a work, therefore baptism can't save you. So you see how that's an, a, a sort of a false importation. The sedes doctrinae is that passage in Peter not the passage in Paul. Paul's talking about something else. But you're talking about bringing in Scripture. What if you bring in something that has nothing to do with Scripture? That becomes very easy for a Lutheran theologian to deal with. Well, you would think. I heard a pastor just the other day, he's talking about the John 3 passage where Jesus is talking to... Nicodemus. Yes, and so it's very clear that when Jesus says about being born again of water and spirit that's the water from the mother this was a lutheran no oh okay this my point is it's bringing something in that's not biblical at all at all right and if you do the word if you do the work on that the philological work you know that amniotic fluid was never called water uh in the ancient world so that's an importation from the outside. But it's very easy for us to, to bring these in, even unwittingly, right? Right. You have to sort of, not sort of, you have to um, take all of your thoughts captive to the world of the Holy Scriptures. You can't draw them into your world until you've been drawn into theirs. So we talked about the first one. You can't use Scriptures that don't talk about a particular topic to make it speak to that particular topic. The other one is this, that uh, Scripture is its own interpreter. And this this is exactly the point that you were just making right now. Uh, We don't go fetching around for extra-biblical explanations of things that we think might be pertinent to a particular topic and then interpret the Scriptures. We, We allow the Scriptures to speak themselves and for our understanding of a particular passage to be shaped by, by the rest of the scriptures and not by Aristotle or um, Zizek or whoever it might be. So those are the two ways that a Lutheran theologian would, would, would come to um, a controverted topic. You say X, he says Y. Let's look at the scriptures and see what the clear scriptures themselves say. But I I find it so fascinating. What really is at the heart of the Lutheran theologian that does that? Part of it is unity, agreement. Let's not be divisive. Let's not be schismatic. Somebody's going to have to bend. If somebody's wrong, somebody's going to have to bend, or or going back to our former uh, words, somebody's going to have to get straightened here. We're going to have to uh, get this scoliosis 
straightened out. And that'll, that will be painful. But the goal is unity. There's a premium placed on that, isn't there? In, in the Evangelical Lutheran Church. This, this is unlike virtually any other church body I'm aware of. Maybe some of the hardcore Calvinists are, are on, onto this as well. Um, but it really goes back to this. Is it the will of the Lord that you should believe falsehood about what he has taught? And the answer is no. But then on top of that, that's why it's called the Book of Concord, right? I mean, it, with one heart, with a, with the same heart. I mean, this is why it's not called, uh, you know, clear teachings, clear teachings about God. I mean, the idea is is that John seventeen, we would all believe the same thing, right? A fundamental motivator uh, for Lutherans and doing this kind of work is to live into Christ's high priestly prayer, that they may all be one. It is to live as the early church did, that held fast to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. It is to be of one mind. It is to have the unity of spirit and the bond of peace. As this, I mean, this stuff is all over the scriptures. And this is gained not by saying, oh, you and I disagree on this, let's hug and get along, right? It's, it's gained only by agreement in doctrine and practice. The great thing about heaven, well, you could say that everybody in heaven will have their theology straightened, which means everybody in heaven's going to be Lutheran. Correct. No, you're, you're absolutely correct. Yes. If the confessions that we say we believe, teach, and confess— if they are suspect, then nobody's going to be a Lutheran. Right. Right. And you know, so if everybody's going to eventually be Lutheran, why not? Then why get, not get, get on the boat now? now? I, I'm with you. And you know, this This is, I talk to people, you know, this is an interesting pastoral issue. Talk to people um, in their suffering um, about uh, the fact that God is turning them into the people that they are going to be in heaven through their suffering. Why is this? So he's killing the old Adam. Exactly. And the way that he's doing it, one of the ways that he does it, is through suffering. Is through suffering. So you're proud of your intellect. Guess what? God's going to take it away. Christ is your intellect. You're proud of your uh, physical strength. Guess what? God's going to take it away. Christ is your strength. You're proud of your righteousness. Guess what? God took it away and gave you Christ's righteousness in your baptism. All of this is is this walk that we are on from the time we're baptized till the time that we are buried in the grave, uh, this practice for what we are going to be in heaven. And so I love what you're saying about this, that getting on the same page theologically is actually, it's, it's not a human construct. It's not like, it's not like somebody's tidying everything up nice and neat with a bow uh, and putting this pretty little present out there that nobody dare touch. It's really God's will for his people. And it's not prideful to say that there is orthodoxy and there's heterodoxy. And I'm orthodox on this issue. It's actually very humbling to say that. As you know, we didn't come to this by our own reason or our own thinking. I mean, we we all had to come to this because... The scriptures teach things that are really above our reason, and most of this stuff has got to be spiritually appraised anyway. Yeah, and that spiritual appraisal, uh, interestingly, is, I mean, let's not, um, let's not sort of mystify that, right? And I don't think you, you are, but I, I'm sure some people could hear that. And, and, you know, based upon what I've learned about evangelicals in the last two years from, from the podcast— you know they're going to be they're going to be asking for a direct revelation about whether this is you know spiritually worthy oh, or yeah. unworthy oh yeah oh right? yeah 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 the only way you can tell if something is spiritually worthy or unworthy is to answer the question does it stand written and if it does in the scriptures then it is if it's not it doesn't Pastor Kearns, maybe to, to round us out for today uh, in our little introduction and defense of uh, of uh, confessions. I'm going to read this last passage from the formula, um, from the epitome, uh, the introduction, the summary statement. This is uh, paragraph seven. 
the writers say, In this way, the distinction between the Holy Scriptures of the Old and of the New Testament and all other writings is preserved. The Holy Scriptures alone remain the judge, rule, and norm. According to them, as the only touchstone, all teachings shall, shall, and must be discerned and judged to see whether they are good or evil, right or wrong. In other words, the greatest friend of the scriptures uh, are the confessions themselves. And uh, what we plan to do is um, in the next several weeks, uh, there are 12 articles in the formula of Concord. We are going to look at how those read and how they bring scriptural truth directly cited from the scriptures to bear on questions that still uh, rattle around in the modern church. Well, you know, these questions, though, they've rattled around in people's mind, both Christian and non-Christian. I mean, when did they start? I mean, and when will they end? Hundreds of years from now, should the Lord tarry, questions about free will and original sin, they're still going to be there not having been raised with confessions, and certainly not the Lutheran confession, and then to discover it. Where has this been my whole life? It is a beautiful thing, and, and I, I can't even imagine. I, I'm, I'm always astonished and surprised and just in love with what the, what the confessions teach and find myself really built up uh, in God's Word by reading them, just as I am uh, by reading the Scriptures. I can't imagine what it would be like to have lived a long time without them and then encountered them. I'd uh, I'd probably um, tie them to my forehead (laughs) like a phylactery. Yeah, well, very good. Thank you very much, Pastor Kearns. Next time we get together, we will be talking about the very interesting topic of original sin. You've been listening to the Pluck Chicken Podcast with your hosts, Pastors John Bruss and Devin Kern. To discover more, go to thepluckedchicken.com or stjohnlcmstopeka.org.